Welcome back to Rethinking Politics. We're here for episode 13. We're going to be talking about criminal justice reform or something along those lines. Something along those lines, for sure. <laughs> I think closely along those lines depends on what you imagine when we say criminal justice reform. It's a... Uh, we're probably a step back from whatever people picture there. This this episode was definitely a journey for us. We we spent a lot of time thinking and researching and talking about about this issue and we've come to some interesting conclusions so we're glad you could be here with us today to talk about them. Last week last episode we talked about violence and we talked about when the use of force or violence was justified. And and what we came to was a decision that it had to do with the imminent threat. The imminent threat that that person posed. And we intentionally didn't talk about what happens after that Im imminent threat is over. And about those long-term implications and decisions that have to be made. And what happens after truly is... The criminal justice system. The criminal justice system is what happens after a crime has already been committed. What do we do about it? And that's what we want to talk about today. Right. You have the the moment of arrest where they're captured. You have some kind of a they're put into a short term jail, and then the criminal justice system has to judge them, sort out where they're going to go and what they're going to do with them after that point. So before we talk about that, we want to talk about why this even matters, why we're even talking about this in the first place. Right. This may, may not sound like a pressing issue to some people. And it is a pressing issue. Number one, we think it is going to be an important issue in this election, something that, that both parties have mentioned and we're, we're guessing it's going to come up. And so we'd like to have it understood what we believe as we go into these debates and and elections to had some add some clarity there but it's also important just in and of itself and and here's and here's why well i mean there's a lot of reasons why but here's an illustrator of why it's important in the last 50 years the number of people who are incarcerated in the united states so people who were in prison or jail has gone up by 10x. So from in 1972 you had 200,000 people incarcerated. In 2017 that number had shot up to 2.2 million, which is crazy. During that same time period, the violent crime rate, which used to be 401 per every 100,000, is now at 383 per 100,000. So the crime rate hasn't really gone down significantly since then or gone up significantly. And so so crime rates are relatively the same now than where they were 50 years ago, but we have 10 times more people in our prisons. In addition, there's the other question of recidivism. Now, recidivism is obviously a big word. Recidivism is actually a really simple concept, and that idea is... If someone is convicted and goes to prison and is released, how likely are they to be convicted again? So repeat criminals, criminals who commit a crime, get arrested, go to prison, leave prison, and then commit a crime again. 
Now, these numbers, Dan, that you found are crazy. Do you want to talk them about them or shall I? I will. I'll walk people through them. So this is from a study done on prisoners from 30 states, and they picked these 30 states because of the, the, the data that they, these states provided for statistics were comparable. So they could, they could use them. They, you could assume that the other states have similar numbers. Um, that was just for study process, study purposes. And they looked at 404,638 prisoners who were released in 2005. And they followed up with them over a five-year period to see what happened to those people, to see their future interactions with the law. Over that five-year period, 76% were arrested at least once. Oh my goodness, that's bad. 76.6%. That's arrested. It's not convictions but they were arrested at least once. 55.1% were arrested and convicted, either of a new crime or from violating something to do with that previous one. And they were sent back to prison within that five-year window. 55%, think about that for a moment. If you were to say, what is, how would you measure the effectiveness of a prison? What, what are the outcomes you want? I would think number one would be that people who get out of prison don't come back. If you've got, if you've got these people in control, you can do, you control every moment of their life. And 55% of them are going to come back in five years. How are we doing? Awful. How, how are we doing by that measurement? There's a, there are other things you could look at in terms of whether you think the prison system is effective, but the awful is, is a, kind way to <laughs> it's a kind way to describe that and it might be interesting to to know of these people who are going into prison i thought this was interesting that most of them have been arrested many times before they were prisoners in other words most most prisoners are not first time offenders that it's a it's a lifelong relationship between these people and the prisons Right. These 55% that are going back to prison in that five years are going to go back again. May have been to prison before that. And will go back again. Yeah. Right. And we're likely to go back again. So of that group that of, of prisoners that, uh, that got out, 43% of that 404,000 who were released had been arrested 10 times or more. Oh my goodness. And Half of them had been convicted over three times. So, so that raises some excellent questions for, for, for me, Dan, because if the goal of the justice system is to stop crime, and so we've been throwing more people in prison over the last 50 years, and yet crime rates haven't really gone down significantly, then how is it effective? If the goal is to rehabilitate people so that they don't keep committing crimes, it's clearly failing. And if the goal is to keep people out of prison as much as possible, it's also definitely failing. So, And people have different views on what the goal of the criminal justice system is. But right. no matter how you look at it, whether it's, it's cracking down on crime or reducing prison populations, or working on rehabilitation, which are the three most common ones I hear, in each of those metrics, the justice system really is failing. Right. You could, I mean, I mean, let's, 
we'll, we'll, uh, we'll give it the benefit of a doubt and say, maybe this is as good as it could be, right? Maybe, maybe it's just that this is really hard and 55% back in prison in five years is actually doing really well. And that's a case you could make, right? You have to at least consider that maybe this is just something extremely hard. But as you said, you cast your eyes at literally any other country and ask yourself how that's going. <laughs> ask yourself how recidivism is. Look at the number of people in prison. Yeah, we have the highest incarceration rate of any country in the world. Yes, which is, which is crazy. Every time I hear that, I think, are they reporting it accurately? <laughs> Surely the secret police in some crazy nation are doing worse. But but against but even if that's true against all of the European countries, yeah, obviously that's the means Western something. world. That's yeah, against the countries where we'd be like, yeah, they're giving us real numbers. That's a that's a big deal. And 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 points to another kind of failure per se, if you have if you have that kind of a problem. And maybe it's a failure in education, or you could try and point the blame in a lot of places. But the point is that there's some kind of failure. There's something terribly wrong if we have that many people in prison and they are that likely to come back. And surely we can do better. And we can do better. That's a, that's that's the case we're going to make. We can do much better. And the first thing we need to do in order to to do better is to understand why we're doing what we're doing, because that's something that's almost never talked about. We always talk about outcomes, but not about the rationale behind what we're doing. So so we, we mentioned real quick at the beginning how the judicial process works in its most basic form. We're not going to be focusing on the court systems, on lawyers, on any of that. We want to take a, a broader approach so that we can understand some of the underlying principles so that when we can then use those principles to affect change. So in the broadest sense, a crime is committed. You know, we talked before about there's there's violence, but there's also other forms of crime. And so you've got courts, you've got judges, juries, lawyers who are trying to establish guilt, and then they're trying to provide proper punishment. And so basically what you have is you have someone who's found guilty of something, and then you have to figure out what to do with that person. Now, we're not going to be addressing in this episode how you establish whether or not someone is guilty and how well that's working in the court system. <laughs> I, I feel like each episode we have to clarify all the things we're not talking about <laughs> because there are so many things that are currently not not right within the current system. And that is one of those. The The court yeah. systems are not operating like they should. And we don't have time to talk about that right now, but it does need to be talked about in terms of establishing guilt. It does. And let me just mention one point on that. If it seems like we're talking about all the things we can't talk about in this episode, in every episode, it's it's in a very careful effort to be precise. If you go and you start reading studies and then you go and compare what the studies say to what people say the studies say, you'll find that they're never the same. <laughs> Almost never the same. It's, it's in, if you go and you go into a scholarly environment and you read papers and, uh, these papers are very, very narrowly focused. And a, an important part of understanding the paper is understanding what it's not saying, because the more precise you want to be in your thinking and in your analysis of something, the more limited you want to be in your window. 
And we're trying to avoid the cross-contamination of discussing too many ideas at once, because at that point, we would have to resort to what? We'd have to resort to talking points. Mm -hmm. We'd have to resort to broad terminology that is politically associated with with things with parties that already have ideas that are set and have implications, not just implications, but have connotations for good or bad. And it's just better to be precise. It's better if we're going to look at these seriously to stay within the realm of what we're discussing and to focus on it for a minute so that we can really try and grasp with the, with the complexity of it. As they say in the movie, what about Bob? It's baby steps. And so, <laughs> so one baby step at a time. What a movie. <laughs> you know, we're just going to plug in that movie and have you watch that instead, because you may learn more from that movie than anything we're going to say in this episode. It's about psychology, right? Oh, it's it's, it's going to get into criminology a little bit, maybe. Your death therapy cured me, you genius. Sorry, I've, I've been warned against singing in the podcast, so I probably shouldn't do that. Anyways, anyways, back on target. Stay on target. Speaking of being narrowly focused. <laughs> We want to talk about these underlying theories of justice and go through them and discuss their, their pros, their cons, and what that actually means in the justice system. So, so what do I mean by that? Let me give you an example and you'll see it. The first one we want to talk about is deterrent. You want to prevent other people from doing whatever was done. You want to scare others away who might commit that crime so that they're convinced not to commit that crime. Um, one very potent example of that is the death penalty. One of the strongest arguments for the death penalty is, is we want to scare people away from, f from committing these crimes because they know they might get killed. You know, another example. Yeah, it's often, often used. Yeah. Yeah. Another example of that is, is the harsh drug laws that we don't want people to use drugs or to sell drugs. And so we're going to have harsh punishments in order to discourage that behavior. That makes sense, right? That makes sense as a reason for wanting, wanting to create the law. Now here's where deterrent becomes problematic because on its surface, it makes a lot of sense. Right, because you can you can empirically test any of those, right? You could compare it to places that don't have those. You could sort you could get data on that. You could say, is this working? Well, we can. Well, let's change the law, and we'll see if that makes a difference. And so there's a there's a it has the advantage of being empirically empirically testable, um, as you said, and 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 that and I think there is an intuitive connection between uh, between the harshness of the punishment and the frequency of the behavior. People, you know, there's a clear connection there. And so intuitively, it makes sense that, that perhaps tweaking one will tweak the other, right? Now, so the question, though, becomes is, should this be your, your theory behind the laws and the justice that you enact? The punishments that you punish criminals with, should your primary reason be in order to deter other criminals? Now, yeah. if it is your primary reason, what's going to happen? the punishments are always going to become more and more severe because the more severe the punishment, the more it will deter. In fact, I mean, you look at, you look at those countries where if you steal, you get your arm cut off on the first offense. That is an effective deterrent, but it's not <laughs> the most effective deterrent. If you get killed on your first offense for any crime, this is just an extreme example, it would strongly encourage you never to commit a crime. And if your primary reason for punishing people is to stop 
crime from getting committed, then the more extreme the punishment, the more effective it will be, right? And so you can see right. how immediately there's a flaw where there needs to be something more and something different from just a deterrent. Otherwise, you'll end up with with capital punishment for chewing <laughs> bubblegum. Right, right. And it makes it makes sense that so deterrent, as you said, is, is can be a factor in consideration. It can be it's something that people talk about. They talk about uh, if you're you discuss law in a utilitarian manner where you're saying what what works to create the outcomes that we want, then then it makes a lot of sense to discuss deterrence, but taken to its extreme, if there's no other principle to check it, if there's no other principle that 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 connects the the scope of the crime to the punishment, to the the things that are enacted afterward, it becomes a really, really bad guiding principle. It becomes extremely unjust, which is precisely the opposite of what you want. Because in, in its furthest extreme, as you said, you could say, we don't want people stealing at the market and they need a regular reminder. Why don't we grab that guy and we'll string him up and he'll just be the reminder for the day. For a deterrent to be effective, the person doesn't actually even have to be guilty of the crime, which is another fundamental problem with it that makes it so you can't take deterrent as your primary principle for justice. It doesn't, and I guess the third thing I would say about it, is it doesn't have to be about a crime at all. An example would be a ban on on sodas, on large sodas, and there being a penalty against them. It deters people from buying large sodas, which are unhealthy and bad for those people. And so you ban them because it right. deters people from doing them. Whether right. or not there's any justice in it never is even considered. It's not an right. issue. It's it's not connected to justice. It's a it's a principle that is a, a side effect of justice and but is ultimately unconnected to it. And if you let it be the driving principle, then you've you've abandoned justice. So the next principle that that you can use is preventing future threats. In other words, protecting society from this criminal. So this is actually a long-term application of what we talked about before with the imminent threat, where you're allowed to use physical force against someone to stop them from hurting you. So if that person is going to hurt you in the future, you have a right to stop them. And that makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah. People express that as, uh, you know, get the dangerous people off the streets. Yeah. Yeah. And, and an example of that a very easy example is is a serial killer who has no remorse and is planning on killing more people. There is never a good reason to let that person out on the street again, right? The 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 reason and the reason is not because we want to deter people. The reason is because we want to stop him specifically <laughs> from killing other people, right? Yeah. It would be irresponsible to let that person wander around. And so this principle does make a lot of sense. Now, where the principle becomes fuzzy is when you start dealing with probabilities. Let's say, you know, that I steal from Dan and and I get caught and I have to return the thing that I stole and and then it comes down to my punishment. Should I be imprisoned for the rest of my life in order to ensure that I never steal from Dan or anyone else again? 
because and I've and I've said that I, I don't plan to, but we don't know. The probability that I will commit a crime again after I've committed the first crime goes up, right? And, right, absolutely. And at that point, As we've noticed from the recidivism. Exactly. The recidivism stats show that people who commit crimes are more likely to commit crimes in the future. You start playing a probability game. And here's where and here's where it gets interesting as sorry, and here's where it's get gets interesting, as Tom Cruise will tell you, is let's let's say hypothetically that we could predict who's going to commit crimes and who isn't as in minority report, then we could actually arrest people and imprison them before they've committed the crimes. And then you can actually take it a step further and start arresting people because there's a chance that they're going to commit a crime, a probability, a very high probability that they're going to commit a crime. Because if that's your primary motivator, once again, it is a motivator and it is a factor and a principle you want to consider but if it's your primary principle then you're going to incarcerate people for them having a high probability of committing a crime whether or not it's actually just and that is the danger when you look too closely at any one of these principles yeah at the end of the day whether or not this person is going to commit a crime is individual you can, you can, as you said, you can address probability. You can say these factors all contribute. This person was in prison. That's 55% chance. This person also has, you could start to look at other factors and start piece this together and say, this guy's odds are 95%. Even what, even if you could get it to 99% that they're going to commit a crime again. So we should just keep them in prison for life. But that 1%. <laughs> and, and where is the justice? Where is the justice in imprisoning someone for life for what they might do in the future? Perhaps if we were all knowing, even minority report, the, the, one of the twists is that they, they may not be 100% accurate, right? They're not actually predicting the future. Um, even if you could, it seems like the best option would be to intervene, not just to punish them for life, be to find a way to change things so they don't commit the crime in the future. It, it's not a, as you said, it's not a moral principle. It's we, it's not, it's not a governing principle of justice are not based on principles, they're based on expediency. There is no underlying principle, we're just trying to manipulate outcomes. And the problem with manipulating outcomes is it becomes about numbers and it doesn't become about people. And whether or not that person is guilty, whether or not that person deserves it, whether or not it is even right, are no longer relevant if that's your only criteria. And that's a huge problem because your authority to control their life, right, to punish them or to put them in prison or to make them do community service, your authority to do that stems from the fact that they have done something unjust. And deterrence and preventing future threats are not about the unjustness of what they've done. Mm-hmm. It's about it's something a, else. It's about something else. As you said, it's about manipulating outcomes. That's brilliantly put. Why, thank you. So another one we want to discuss is reformation or rehabilitation. This is a this comes up this will come up in every discussion about criminal justice reform, rehabilitation. It's it's what we're talking about with recidivism, right? Um how well is the system rehabilitating people? Well, are they coming back? Is a, is the measure of rehabilitation. This is a this is a very modern approach to justice. A lot of old programs didn't care. And there <laughs> the, are many proponents who say rehabilitation should be the new primary focus of the justice system. 
Precisely. This is the one that is currently the, com- the, the primary focus of, of the justice system. How do we help the offender to become a normal, functional member of society or how to make them become productive or how to make them be empathetic and relate and not be a racist or not be a, a sociopath or psychopath or whatever it may be that we think is wrong with this person. At the very least, it's the, it's the strongest competing theory right now. You have traditional criminal justice on one hand and then the new competing theory which is rehabilitation, which has gained a lot of ground. And so right now, those are kind of your two choices in in terms of discussion. It really is. And it's it's gained a lot of ground through uh, various modern theories of psychology and through um, changes in terms of of what we think of broad philosophical concepts like like, uh, free will and determinism and are we just – are we just mechanistic animals and those kind of questions are, are the broader philosophical arguments around this. In other words, the criminal may not actually be guilty. It, it, they are the way they are because of the environment that has created them. Whether they right. are actually – I mean in some cases they're mentally ill because of various reasons or childhood traumas or abuses. You know, there were things that happened in their life. They They are in a certain socioeconomic status where they can't actually provide for themselves, et cetera, et cetera, all these reasons for why they're they're doing it. Mentally ill, they're victims of society, they're made by their environment, they're they're just misunderstood. (laughs) Uh, There's a lot of of terms that are used to discard or to to, uh, set aside the, the aspect of guilt in crime. I, I love this quote from Dostoevsky that kind of captures this. He predicted this shift in the way we view justice. He said, he wrote in uh, Brothers Karamazov, quote, Do you know that ages will pass and mankind will proclaim in its wisdom and science that there is no crime and therefore no sin, but that there are only hungry people? Close quote. And that, that captures it extremely well. That, that the It's not that this is a... That to act unjustly is sin or evil, but that it is, these are just hungry people. It's just, it's, it's something that, that is beyond their, culpa, beyond culpability. Mm-hmm. And that's where rehabilitation comes in, is we're going to pr- provide them the tools, provide them with the right environment to make them a productive, good citizen. And this, there's a, there's a more fundamental, uh, point I want to make against this theory being the primary theory. And it's that if you think you know how to run my life better than I do, does that give you authority to step in and do so? Because if reformation is the goal, if making people into better people gives you authority to control their life, why are we waiting till they commit a crime? Why aren't we reforming everyone? And why are, yeah, and why aren't we doing it to everybody? If, and there is an argument being made for that. Right. If you can, if by taking away your freedom to choose and to act as you, as you would like to and to suffer the consequences of that is worse at teaching people to be, it, it, helping people become better than completely controlling every aspect of their life. We're controlling large aspects of their life, then, then 
why don't we do that? You know, there's a utilitarian <laughs> argument there that, that you could, that if you were to control the world and it made it better, there'd be an argument for that. And I just, I just don't see that is even being remotely a good idea because it won't work. It won't be, even the utilitarian side of it fails. It won't make them better. And it would be wrong to try and do that. It would be terrible injustice to steal the freedom from them and say, look, I know you and I disagree, but I'm right and I'm going to impose yeah, it. Yeah, even if it were possible, even if it were feasible, it would be unjust. And that's and obviously a theme that's coming up and recurring here is about this is we're talking about the criminal justice system, but so many reasons and so many so many principles that people are using to decide what to do with these people in the justice system are not based on justice at all. It's based on something completely different. It is. And I, I want to share a quote here from C.S. Lewis on this Reformation issue because it's so cogent. And this is, this is C.S. Lewis in his essay, essay collection, God in the Dock, his essay collection, but someone else put them together. But it's a, one of the essays in there. He writes, Of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated. But those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. They may be more likely to go to heaven, yet at the same time likelier to make a hell of earth. This very kindness stings with intolerable insert, insult. To be cured against one's will, and cured of states which we may not regard as disease, is to be put on the level of those who have not yet reached the age of reason, or those who never will. To be classed with infants, imbeciles, and domestics, and domestic animals. Close quote. Now he uses some, some rhetoric in there you may or may not agree with, with its religious overtones, but it's, his point is absolutely well stated in that it is to be treated as a child, not as a man not as an adult, not as a human being who is equal in some way to other human beings. It's to be reduced to someone who can't think for themselves and treated as such. And so reformation, if reformation is the primary principle by which you get authority over everyone else, then I suggest that every, every individual is at war with everyone else because it's just a matter of who's stronger and who's mm-hmm. going to be able to impose their vision mm-hmm. of mankind. No, and that, that, that is the end result if that principle is true. So, next one we want to talk about is retribution. Retribution is an interesting word. It's about getting just desserts. It's about getting what you've merited by your actions. And this is what we talked about. I mean, we mentioned briefly in our last episode about whether or not someone deserves to die. Whether or not someone has has merited is a is a difficult dis- discussion but in many ways is a very important discussion when we're talking about justice because there there is a fundamental argument that underlies the principle of retribution and that is that if you hurt someone else you are liable to be hurt yourself as we discussed earlier when you are trying to kill someone, in many ways, you've surrendered your right to life, at least in that moment. 
but in many ways on a more just scale in terms of actual justice you have forfeited some of your rights and that's where this idea of retribution comes in in just desserts for what you have done. When you try and kill someone, you've forfeited some of your rights. When you steal from someone, you've forfeited some of your rights. And it is just to seek retribution for what you've done. This is uh, our argument in some ways on this is partially that it's, that it's intuitively true. And that a little kid knows that someone who hits him should suffer some consequence. There should be consequence. And in, in the world is governed by consequence to a large degree. And I don't mean governed in terms of people. I mean, there are laws of nature. And if you try and act contrary to those laws, the things you want to do won't work. If I want to walk across this room, I have to stand and use my muscles in certain ways that correspond to gravity to reach the consequences I want. You have to you have to work through what what might be described as physical laws. Um, some theorists discuss it as uh, discuss a kind of natural law that how this applies morally. But the idea is basically that you reap what you sow, right? There should be consequences for what you do. When I work hard, I want there to be a corresponding payoff. And when I'm lazy, it's probably good for me if there's not, you know, if there's a corresponding lack of payoff, right? We want correlate. We want what we invest in what we do to have a, a proportionate response in the world. And when somebody does something wrong to someone else, there needs to be an equal push against them. Where that comes from and how that should be manifest is another question. But the basic idea of retribution is based on a concept of kind of a, a law, a world governed by laws and a, and a, a just, a kind of justness in existence that we want manifest in social, in social interactions. Retribution is actually one side to a two-sided coin. The other side of that coin is restitution, which is usually in how it's applied today. When we talk about restitution, we mean financial restitution. That if you steal from someone, that you are required to give it back or to pay for it, to compensate them financially for the damage that you've caused. You know, if you wreck someone's car you're financially liable for the damage that you caused. And and the idea is, once again, that there's this justice of, you know, whether it's physical violence and or it's theft or some other form, that there needs to be restitution. There needs to be something paid for what's been done versus retribution, which is the other side of the coin, which means that there needs to be a punishment, a consequence for what's been done. And those two ideas are in many ways the foundation of traditional criminal justice. And I mean, if you look at the American justice system, it is primarily, I mean, all the way back to the beginning based on these two ideas. And as time has gone on, ideas like deterrent, ideas about preventing future threats, ideas about rehabilitation, especially now, have become very popular, but the core basis for our criminal justice system is these two ideas, retribution and restitution. In both of those cases, there's something wrong with the world that needs to be righted. And it gives the moral, 
It acts as something you can point to that needs to be corrected, which can then, which then gives you the moral authority to act against someone else, right? To, to make retribution or restitution happen has a moral weight that, that justifies some use of force against person. And so when it comes down to it, our argument is very simple. Our argument is that retribution and restitution as underlying fundamental philosophies are not wrong. They aren't wrong, but especially in the way they're being applied now, they're missing something. And the things that they are missing are being replaced with other things that are being less effective. So what we want to talk about is what's missing and how that would change things. So the the idea that we want to talk about an underlying philosophy is the idea of restoration. And if you hear restoration, you may think, isn't that the same as restitution? And in many ways, yes, it is the same if you're talking about the literal definitions of the words. But we're talking about ideas in the world. Of, we're talking about ideas in terms of criminal justice. And in criminal justice, restitution means financial restitution. And so we're yes, using specific the word meaning, restoration yeah. to mean more. But in many ways, it is the same as restitution. And so we're, we're not here to argue nuances of the words. We're just going to use the word restoration. Right. And it's it's also partially that we're pulling it from others, from how it's being used and proposed in other spheres, and it already carries some of the connotations that we're applying to it um, yes. as it's been discussed in other by scholars. Yeah, yeah. Restorative justice is not an original thought that we're having in this podcast. It is a a criminologist started idea, and we'll talk about that. We'll talk about some of the guys who have who have done stuff with restorative justice. But first we want to talk about what restorative justice is. So this philosophy proposes that when a crime is committed, harm is done. And in fact, they may not even say when a crime is committed. They'd say when harm is done, <laughs> a crime is something yeah. needs to happen. That justice lies in undoing, repairing, and or healing that harm to the greatest extent possible. So this philosophy argues that when harm is done, there is literally, I mean, harm has been done. There's a wound. There's an imbalance in the world. There's an injustice. Injustice. <laughs> I you're going to say the force for a second. I was going to throw up a little bit yeah, in my mouth. I'm going to, I'm going to remove. I not, never said imbalance. Not that, I, <laughs> not that I have anything terribly strong against Star Wars. Just But our, we don't want our worldview to be based off of the force. I agree with that. <laughs> At all. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just thinking about the force now and how it's not even that it's bad, it's that it makes no sense. So that there is an injustice and that justice does not lie in anything beyond repairing injustice. And that's what true justice is. And that's what restorative justice is all about. And so in many ways, it is very similar and a holistic compilation of restitution and retribution that it is about restoring how things were before the harm was done as much as is possible and obviously in many cases it's not possible 
to restore things to exactly how they were. Actually, I'd say it's never possible. And it's never possible. It's never yeah. possible to do that, but it doesn't mean that you can't restore some of it or a large portion of it. Yeah. So even though you can't, as you said, you can't undo the harm per se, you can't rewind time, but the harm includes a variety of things that are often even beyond the scope of what we, what we discuss. Restitution is about money and certainly more harm has been done than, than can than be losing, fixed with money. Than can be fixed with money. And, and a lot of that is in things that are much less tangible than property and injuries and money and even social status. It's, uh, it's relationships at the heart of it and other things that are very difficult to, to address without looking at it on a case by case basis. Yeah. That, that retribution focuses on punishing the criminal and restitution focuses on financial help for the victim. But those two things alone are not even close to a complete picture. And that's what restoration is all about. Here's here's an example. So Howard Zare is not an example. Here's a better explanation. Howard Zare is a criminologist who pioneered the idea, at least in the name, of restorative justice. And so he's written some books and talked about these concepts. And here's how he explains it. He says, traditional criminal justice asks three questions. The first question they ask is, what laws have been broken? Second question is, who did it? And the third question is, what does the offender or do the offenders deserve? And that's it. That's really all that traditional criminal justice focuses on. So those three questions focus, and this is, and when he talks about traditional criminal justice, in this sense, he is focusing on retribution. Because those three questions are about, number one, they're about laws. It's all about laws. So if a law wasn't broken or violated, then it doesn't matter if someone was hurt or not. And then the second question is find the guilty party, right? And that's the, that's the portion that we're obviously not talking about today. And then once you found the guilty party, what does that guilty party deserve? And then you enact whatever they deserve whether that's imprisonment or death or community service, whatever it is, we're going to enact that penalty and then move on. And the focus on what laws have been broken is really, is really where it is really where it gets off in a bad foot immediately. And here's why many of the, of the crimes that are committed are described as crimes against society. So, if you go to a civil court where it's an individual has sued another individual or there's some dispute between two individuals over something mundane, you know, no crime's been committed, but there's a dispute. It could be over the property line or something like that. They go to civil the civil court and it'll be so-and-so versus so-and-so. It'll be the two people involved, this person versus this person or this business or this group, you know, some specific entities. In many criminal cases, it's so-and-so versus the state of California or versus the people or versus the state of such and such place. The victim is not even the one prosecuting. It's the state prosecuting on behalf of the state. 
in order to prevent offenses against the state. Even in the framing, <laughs> the victim is more is really a witness than a party. Right. Even in the framing of it, the victim is not a party to it. They're they're not the focus. Now, in those cases, perhaps some restitution is part of the penalty and, and whatnot. But but it's a secondary issue. The question is, are you guilty of breaking the laws? And at that point, once you've asked that question, you've decided that's the central question here, you've forgotten about the victim. Yeah, it's not about the victim. It's about the law. Right. The question should be, are you guilty of harming the victim in this way? And and then you, and you start there and you stay there and you stay with this, this vision of the fact that this is a problem between these people. And, and you keep it there. That's how you, you don't, I, I mean, imagine trying to solve a dispute like that in your own family where two kids are arguing and you're like, no, it's not about what you did to him. It's about the fact that you're annoying me. Or it's about, it's about <laughs> it's the about, fact that you broke this family rule. Right. This family rule is what's important. So we need to, est- yeah, we need to establish <laughs> if you hitting him in the head with a baseball bat violated, you know, our, our bedtime rule. And that's what matters. <laughs> right, right. It's a, and if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, that's a, you're, you're nitpicking, like how it's framed doesn't matter. But the problem is that that difference in language and that way of framing it reflects every step of the process in how it's treated to the point where the victim is a secondary thing. And there's never any connection. Like the victim and the perpetrator don't talk. Don't talk. Imagine, imagine trying to settle a dispute in your family, but here's one rule that's important. You're going to have to solve this dispute, but they can't interact. Think about that for a second. What does that do for their relationship? How do you solve this dispute in a way that heals that relationship? How do you solve this dispute in a way that makes them feel like it's been resolved? Like, like there isn't still something there that's going to haunt them. How is it that the victim gets no say in any of this? Doesn't what the victim, what happened to the victim and how it individually affected them have any impact on what would be just to fix it? How could it, how could it not? I mean, what they Mm -hmm. do is they'll do, you know, a kind of financial take. How much was that car worth that they stole? But that's, that's, I mean, values, as we've discussed, values entirely subjective, (laughs) or as we've mentioned, at least, and we'll discuss at length. At some point, value is entirely subjective and, and you can't understand what the value of anything is to anybody without reference to that person. It's just, there's a, there's a big disconnect there. So when Howard goes on with his questions that restorative justice asks, the difference is, is immediate. Because the first question is, who has been hurt? Immediately, it's a focus on what harm has been done, not a focus on the laws. The second question, what are their needs? In other words, someone has been hurt, damage has been done, how can that damage be fixed? How can we help the victim? Third question, whose obligations are these? So we're not asking who's guilty, we're asking whose obligations. In other words, the guilty party, the responsible party, isn't just guilty of breaking the law, they have an obligation to help those who've been hurt. Wait, what? Because I thought we just put them in prison and that fixes it. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Well, of course they do like that. When you think of it that way, it's so clear that it does that, right? If I do something wrong to you, I have an obligation to you. Will punishing me absolve me of that obligation to you? Would anything anyone else decides to do to me really fix that obligation? I, I'm shaking I my head no, but... <laughs> I don't think so. I, I don't think... I, I, I don't think so. I don't think that's possible. I'm, I'm, as if I, if I'm stuttering a little bit, it's because I'm thinking it through live, right? <laughs> <I'm> not, <laughs> I, don't, I don't see how it could. It's not immediately apparent to me that that, it, that you can solve an obligation to someone else without actually interacting with them in some way, without doing something for them or to them or with them. And then, and then they he asks three more questions that are all really good, but not that are building on these first three questions. Build on it and try and figure out how to solve it. Exactly, and questions like what are the causes? Who has a stake in the situation? What is the appropriate process to involve the stakeholders, in other words, those who are in, who, who are invested in the situation, in an effort to address causes and put things right? And so, so those three questions at the end are all about finding out information about what happened, who's involved, and then what we can do to make things right. And that's what restorative justice is all about. It's about making things right. And as Dan said, what's so great about restorative justice is that when you put it like that, you're like, well, duh, of course we want to make things right. That should always be the priority when something has been made wrong. And if your purpose is a justice system, if, if this is what government is trying to do here is have a justice system, why not have that be the primary motivator? That when some harm, when harm is done, how can we make things right? You know, so the key principle with restorative justice is that it's not about fixing the guilty party. It's not about deterring future crimes. You know, fixing the guilty party is rehabilitation. It's not about deterring future crimes. And it's not about, it's not about uh, the, 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 the threat guilty in the Guilty party being sufficiently punished by, yeah, exactly. by society for breaking laws. No, it's about fixing what has been broken. In the, in the simplest sense, that's what it's about. So there, and that's, and then that's it. That, that's it. <laughs> Fix what has been broken. Right. And we get that, we get that if you're thinking about this and you're like, oh, that seems simple enough. How do, what does that look like in the laws? Um, we're going to get to a few examples. Um, but, but we wanted that, but that principle should be that simple. The simplicity is, is its strength in a lot of ways. So many of, so much of politics is obscured by different interests and, and reasons for doing things when the initial reason, the thing that everyone was like, yeah, this is what gives us authority to intervene in this person's life and to, and to take over and to make them do things. When those things were actually very clear and very simple and something that we're pretty much universally agreed on. But then as they become commonplace and the laws expand and these different things happen, you get, you get a lot of confusion about it. And, and, uh, and at that point, fixing it looks very vague. To fix it, you have to have a good idea of what the primary purpose is. And the purpose is to fix the thing that's broken. One last thought before we get into the laws is that if you're looking at the right thing, the laws will make sense and they will be, they will be better. 
If you focus on the, the thing that needs to be focused on, the moral principle in the case of punishment, uh, often in other episodes we've talked about outcomes and how to make outcomes better. Uh, the purpose of this is, is to consider the moral authority and what justifies using force against someone in the long term. Mm-hmm. When they're not a threat, what in justifies that this system in the first place? What justifies having a criminal justice system? What is what is this justice we speak of? And and to base it on that those ideas gives you the moral authority. And once you have the moral authority, you can work better with all of the other pieces because the pieces center on that, and and people see it and can agree with it and can be a part of it. So we want to talk about, as Dan said, some examples of how applying this principle could change existing laws and systems. The first one we want to talk about is drug laws. Specifically, we want to talk about um, minimum sentencing for drug laws. It's something that, that was brought to my attention years ago actually watching a movie by Dwayne The Rock Johnson called Snitch, which is an action movie that is about this this dad who has a kid who is entrapped by these police officers to what what happens, he's sent a package, he signs for it. The package is full of drugs from a buddy. And because he signed for that drugs, he's considered a dealer in the drugs. And because it was a package mailed between states, it, it it reached a certain threshold so that the min- mandatory minimum sentencing laws were applied. And he was going to have to serve a minimum of 25 years for accepting that package unless he was able to flip someone else for the police, which is what his friend had done to get out of his own mandatory minimum years so his dad goes and actually hunts down real drug cartels in order to get them some convictions so his son doesn't have to serve 25 years (laughs) at the end of the movie and i thought that was it was a ridiculous plot but at the end of the movie they start listing all these statistics about mandatory minimum sentencing and all these real statistics and how everything in the movie was based on things that had actually happened to real people. <laughs> and sure enough, as soon as Who you knew movies can be good for you. Yeah. And it, and the movie was making a, a point about these laws and about how broken these laws are. And, and it's true. You can, you can, you can be required to serve 10 plus years without chance of parole for having as little as as 10 grams of LSD. And you're thinking, okay, well, that's not very much at all, but LSD is very powerful, you'll say. Except that often when they calculate it, they'll count the sticker or paper that the LSD is on. And so you can hit that 10 grams real quick. Yeah, that's you're just explaining it to me that you, you lick the sticker and it's enough if it's got LSD. Yeah, exactly. Which is crazy. Crazy potent. And... 10 grams is how many ounces again? What did we look at? It was like 0.03 ounces or something like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, grams gram, are, are nothing. Right. If you're not visualizing grams properly, it's it's minuscule amounts. And so with the criminal justice system, you can see where things like we talked about before about deterrent has become a huge influencer in the drug war. Because these laws were passed after there was a political push to crack down on drugs. 
it wasn't about the harm that was being committed against someone. You know, these these individuals who were potentially just selling to to their buddies may or may not be doing harm. And that is up for I mean they're they're doing harm in in terms of the drugs are harmful, but the fact that they're they're consenting adults assuming that they are but the fact that they are consenting adults does change that. But even if it's harm, are you going to argue that it's 10 years of harm or 25 years in prison worth of harm? And on top of that, the question becomes, how is sending that kid to 25 years in prison going to make this un- injustice justice? How is this going to fix what's broken? And as soon as you start to think of it that way, those mandatory laws make no sense. This isn't going to fix what's broken. This law was designed to to capture kingpins and is being used on 18-year-old kids. It's not fixing what's broken. It's breaking more people. And that's just one example of of how you can apply it. You were telling me about how uh, 10 years may seem more or less to some people. But when you compare it with how other laws punish people, what, what happens with other crimes, it's really surprising. It, it is. I mean, there are there are I mean, there are instances of people who who were, were physically assault, assaulted, who were beaten up in their own home and and the person is convicted and yet is serving significantly less time than someone who's serving time for for minimum minimum drug laws. I mean, we're talking a matter of months and not years. Yeah, it's it's crazy. It's crazy. It's the fact that you can assault someone and if you can assault someone and and seriously harm them and be in jail for less time than someone who is doing 10 grams of LSD or whatever it is has has them in their possession. Something's wrong. Especially since the person who's assaulted someone has clearly broken something. Uh, harm someone. There's we got we have a victim there that does uh, that. You need to restore something to. No, and and that's a great example because in that example, it's not about the victim. It's not about restoration in the current system. It's about okay, we're going to send that person to prison for a few months, but that doesn't fix things. The 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 problem that was caused is still there. You're talking that, the assault case. The, the, the assault yeah, case. Yeah. That something was broken fundamentally and is still broken and very little has been done to attempt to fix it. And you may right. be saying, well, what can you do? Well, there are, there are a lot of different things you can do. I mean, you could argue that restitution financially would help, but but sending that person to prison does not help the victim. And as long as our focus is on the guilty party and not on the victim, we won't be finding ways to help the person who was hurt. And that should always be the focus. Another example would be how police officers, we discussed police authority, how police authority is based on the individual authority that we have. That, that As we've been discussing with these, these moral principles are not products of democratic rule or of any of these other things. These are moral principles that stand on their own and are as applicable to individuals as they are to police officers or to groups of people. And police officers, as we argued in our episode titled The Basis of Police Authority, police are as subject to the laws as anyone else, 
but should they have subject to laws. should be should be subject to laws because their moral authority stems from the same place that that individual moral authority stems from. They're not they get no no dispensation, no uh, special authorization uh, to to break the laws because of their position. That's it, not how justice works. There are no exceptions. There is no one who has any any exception to any of the rules. The current state of it is that a police officer can break laws and gets partial immunity. Not just can break laws, but is actually protected by the law. He can do harm and not be breaking the law in ways that others could not. Right. And in, in the way we're describing it, he can harm someone and not have to restore anything to that person. He can, he can do something wrong, do break something, harm something, uh, ruin something and not have to fix it, not have to be held accountable yeah, for it. Yeah, there'll be no reckoning. I mean, no reckoning. So those are just a few examples. And, and part of the reason we bring up these examples is because even though our focus isn't on outcomes, just with these few specific examples, you can see how outcomes could be drastically improved by using a system of restorative justice. In terms of drug laws, we talked about it in our, our episode two about the war on drugs. The number of those people in prison who are there for drug-related laws, drug-related violations are crazy high. And so if those people were instead seeking to restore the harm that they've done, you would see a drastic reduction in the number of those people who are serving prison sentences, which is just one example of how outcomes could change radically. Right. It's a, it's It seems silly when you think that a person could be trying to right the wrong they did, or they could be sitting in a cell. Which is better? Well, <laughs> perhaps their time could be better spent. <laughs> You know, at least, and to some degree, we have that, right? Occasionally, there'll be there'll be uh, community service and things like that. There are bits there are bits in our laws that reflect the ideas we're talking about. But what we're suggesting is an, is a refocus from the ground up onto these things and a shedding of the other details that can get in the way and often confuse the issue. So that this is the the focus, and it doesn't mean that. There will be no prisons. There's there's always going to be a case for a need for some of the things we see in a more traditional justice system. And, and that's just fine. What we're saying is that the focus needs to be on justice, about fixing what has been broken, and that as you do that, these things will change. We have one, one positive example that we want to talk about and propose as a way that people have taken these principles – and applied them and, and kind of rethought their justice system a little bit in their, in their community. This is from, this is from Longmont, Colorado. They decided that their justice system was not, was actually they, their, the reason they wanted to implement it seems to be because the outcomes were so bad. <laughs> and, and often the outcomes are what the recidivism, the things that we mentioned before, why you should be worried about this issue and looking into it and trying to rethink it. And, so they decided they were going to try something different. They created, they created a restorative justice system that exists side by side with the standard justice system. And the way it works is when a crime has been committed, they approach the victim and the perpetrator individually, and they ask them 
if they would be interested in going through a different path than the normal justice system. They asked them if they would be interested in going through a restorative justice process, and they describe what it would entail. And if they're both willing, then they continue. And here's what it entails. The perpetrator and the victim get together, and they get together with other stakeholders, as the, as the principle we read above, as Howard Zare describes it. These are often volunteers. There's usually a representative from uh, the police, a representative from the community, um, volunteers who have helped out with this before. And they get this group of uh, maybe the families of the, of the individuals involved. Yeah, I think from, from what I saw, it appeared to be you would usually have family and friends on both sides, and then you'd have a volunteer administrator mediator who's there to help, as well as a police department representative. So usually we're looking at maybe around eight people sitting together, six to eight people. And they, part of what they do is they begin by taking turns discussing it. And the, the victim talks about what happened, what they felt like happened, what, how it affected them and how it harmed them. And they let them talk and they listen and everybody just listens. You know, this isn't a, this isn't a time to argue it. This is not a courtroom where you're arguing your case. And then the perpetrator is given time to talk, explain why they did it, you know, their story, what, what led them to that moment. Well, and then the group comes to, uh, as they discuss it, the group then plays more of a role as they discuss what would be required to put this right, what it would take to fix this, what are the harms that have actually been done, and how to restore that, how to fix it, and what it would look like for this perpetrator, what he or she needs to take responsibility for and fix, and how exactly that individual is going to address it. And this can be extraordinarily individual, right? In this kind of an environment, in this kind of a discussion, where the people are actually connecting, relationships are actually being built, where you can then apply a completely individual solution to what is in reality a very unique problem. I mean, mm -hmm. we have categories of crimes, theft, and the laws cover theft, and, and there should be, should be a recognition that theft is wrong and there should be punishments for theft, right? But, but truly, when you get into the details, this is partially why we have a jury, right? Every case is unique. And in this kind of a discussion environment where the people are willing and where the person, the perpetrator, is, is a willing participant, not somebody who's trying desperately to de make themselves look as good as possible so they get the lowest punishment, mm -hmm, but is mm -hmm. actually stepping in and taking responsibility, it's an entirely different experience. And this system that they have is like, I just thought, every time I think about it, I, I'm filled with a little bit of wonder. I, I've, I'm moved by this. I'm inspired by it because, because it, is, it is so different. What if the perpetrator's could see what they've done in a way and hear it from the victim and connect with them and say and, and explain why they did it. What if there could be some understanding between them? In our current system, they don't talk. You're there's legally, no place for that, yeah. There's no place for that. You're legally advised against it. It's a mistake. You can, you can, uh, the victim can ruin either party, depending on how they interact, can, can ruin, ruin their the chance case. of winning yeah. the case. Yeah. And, uh, 
And, and how absurd is that when you think about it? Because what needs to happen is precisely that. There needs to be some kind of connection understanding. And obviously, if you just got the two together in a room and let them fight it out, that's not going to help, right? It's a very <laughs> that's controlled not what's happening. setting. This is a controlled setting. It's a controlled setting where there's a, there's a carefully thought out process happening. And it's not, this isn't exactly how these principles have to be applied. This is merely an example of how it's been applied there. Yeah, this is, this is not our, we're not saying everyone needs to do what Longmont, Colorado was doing. We're saying, we're talking about some different ideas and here's one place where they applied those ideas and applied them not just a little bit, but aggressively. You know, they, they <laughs> have pushed for an aggressively different system. And they and as Dan said, they still have the current and and traditional justice system working in tandem with that, because in some cases people don't choose that option and there is that other avenue. And mm-hmm. there also are some crimes that really this system doesn't work for. It's not a universal fix what they have there. It doesn't change right. the fact that it has made a major difference right. in Longmont. Right. You can imagine someone who, who's gone through the normal system, the normal justice system, and they come out hating the system that's ruined their life, right? This, they, they, they didn't, they never trusted society. Why would they like society's decision? and judgment upon them. That experience is fundamentally different through this process. They're interacting with someone who they've harmed. That's That has the potential to have effects that the other court system never could regarding their actual guilt and empathy and, and ability to, to see that what they've done is actually wrong. And as a result, as Brad said, it, it's had a remarkable effect. So Here are a few of the statistics. There were 5,000 part one crimes in their city of 65,000 people. And this is about 20 years ago before they started this process. Since then, uh, part one crimes. If that doesn't ring a bell to you, it didn't ring a bell to me either when I saw it. And I read a lot (laughs) of this stuff. (laughs) It's how the FBI categorizes certain crimes. And it's the, it's, it includes murder. It includes, uh, uh, vehicle theft it includes rape it includes it's it's the very very most serious crimes so they had 5000 part 1 crimes and 65000 people now they have 100000 people and the part 1 crimes have gone down to 3000 they had 450 gang members now they've less than 50 they had and this is i think the most interesting statistic we found they had 1 to 3 Women die from domestic violence per year. They had one year where they had five. Five women die in a single year. In the 20 years since they've started restorative justice, they've had two. They've had two domestic violence deaths. Women dying from domestic violence total over 20 years. Domestic violence is one of the hardest crimes to deal with. It is so complicated. They don't report for fear of retaliation, for fear of not being uh, taken seriously by the police. And some don't report for fear that the police will take them seriously, right? They want their husband or their their chastised, yeah, chastised and to change, but they love them and they're committed and they have kids and they, 
it's, it's such a complicated issue. What solution does the justice, does the traditional justice system have for them? I don't, I don't see one. Well, what about this other process where they would sit down, where there would be relationships with other people connecting with them and helping them, where there would be uh, plans that they've put together to address these issues and, and which other people have given useful feedback on and, uh, and contract that they agree to that the, you know, the perpetrator agrees to fulfill that can do things for these relationships, which are the fundamental aspect of so many crimes, how people perceive society, how people perceive their community, how people perceive each other. These things are, are a fundamental aspect that the traditional system cannot correct for. It can punish after, but it can't really address in ways that teach directly and that help directly and support directly where this can. And there's the proof. And there's the proof. There's the proof. That's, that's one to three women per year, two in 20 years. That's, that's insane. And, and even if, as Brad said, perhaps there are, there are some categories of crime or types of crime where the traditional system is going to be, where we're refocusing, changing this to a focus on restoration is going to look more or less the same. It might be cleaned up and simplified a little bit, but it's going to be it's going to be very similar to what we're doing now in, in practice. But other things, some of the other crimes, some of the things like drug laws, things like, uh, things like domestic abuse, things like, uh, uh, a lot of the thefts and things, a lot of the, a lot of the crimes that people do that then lead to bigger crimes or lead to that first prison sentence, mm-hmm. which is going to lead to more crimes later. This system. This restorative justice, not just this particular system, but restorative justice as a principle can completely redirect that entire process. Instead of someone entering, you know, people talk about the prison industrial complex, but entering a system that's net result is that that person is likely going to to have several more convictions to be arrested 10 more times, as Dan said to completely circumvent that process and have a different one that doesn't lead to that could be an absolute game changer and has been an absolute game changer in this town it in has. terms of of all of those metrics we talked about you know we talked about rehabilitation metrics we talked about crime statistics we talked about prison populations and in longmont where they applied one one way of applying the principles we talked about, you've seen those changes, and applying them on a state level, on a national level, or maybe in a different town could look very different. And I think it will look very different as these things are applied, but these principles are being applied in more and more areas. You know, this one town in Colorado is not the only one and it's not the only way. But as you apply these principles, you're going to see those outcomes changed. But more importantly, you're going to create a justice system that is actually based upon justice, about fixing what has been broken. And that is the most important thing. Right. And we, in some ways, it's a different take on justice in that, in that justice is often cited as the, you know, when, I, when we say we want justice, in a lot of ways, it is. <laughs> it has the connotation of retribution, 
And at a minimum, it can reach retribution. As we said, uh, cases where you know, a first-degree murder, this process will make a difference. But in some ways, the punishments are going to be similar to what we've seen because often the, the perpetrator is not going to be a willing participant in trying to restore what's been broken. In fact, they may be the opposite of willing. They may be, they might try and make things worse if given the opportunity, in which case you, you do as much as you can, right? You restore it to the degree that you can. And that's okay. There's a, there's going to be a scale that still must be the focus. Yeah. And that's what we're talking about is refocusing our criminal justice system. Yeah. And the beauty of restoration is that there is room for redemption in it. And the fact that it does lead to a kind of redemption per se, a kind of so that someone who goes through that process and connects, a perpetrator who connects with the victim, realizes, relates to them, and can also say their piece and explain what brought them to that moment where they, where they decided to do that, or that has the power to change people in ways that, that mere penal systems don't. That's why we use this word restoration and not merely the other two principles, because there is something higher here. Justice offers the chance for change when rightfully focused, not just the chance for punishment. That was beautifully put, Dan. And on that note, thank you for listening, and we hope to see you next week.